Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Our guest today is an absolute legend in the commercial industry, real estate industry, the principal and head of Tri-State Investment Sales at Avis & Young, James Nelson. James, it's a pleasure having you on today. Thank John, you for doing this. Thank you, of course, John. Thank you for having me. I love what you're doing with the show. I'm a big fan, so awesome. it's a real pleasure to be here today. Thank you. And before we talk business, um, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? So where did you grow up sure. and why did you get into this industry? Sure. So, uh, actually, born in Burlington, Vermont, then grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. I don't know if you want the whole, the whole, uh, you know, the whole story. And then uh, my my father was transferred to the Washington Hospital Center, so I was in Bethesda, Maryland, for at least 10, 15 years. Went to Colgate, uh, class of '98, upstate New York, and that's where, thankfully, I found out about Massey Knackle, uh, and that I, I started in, in the business in 1998. Awesome, and you started the business right out of college, directly into commercial real estate. Yes, awesome. Which was was very lucky because I didn't even. I was telling my my oldest son uh, yesterday. He's he's already trying to figure out what he wants to do. Right. He says he wants to get into real estate. I said, Luke, I didn't even know real estate was a thing my senior year in, in college. You've got you got plenty, plenty of, time of time to yeah. figure it out. Yeah, for sure. And what do you think you'd be doing career wise if not commercial real estate? You know, my uh, my senior spring, I, I thought I was going to go out to the West Coast and make movies or write scripts. Okay. I, I love uh, I love doing improv and I love uh, you know writing scripts. And so until it became very clear that you know that you basically go out there and you you try to find freelance work and it would be very challenging. When I, when I started out, I had you know I was in debt. I didn't right. have any money to my name, and so going out w- without a, a paying job was not going to be in the cards. So you know, <laughs> for, fortunately, I ended up in in New York awesome. and, and haven't quit the day job yet. Awesome, great. And um, I want to understand where you first developed your sense of business. So if you had to think to, back to the first time mm-hmm. you remember selling something, what kind of comes to mind? Well, that one's easy uh, because it was really my my grandfather who's been uh, a, a huge. Uh, inspiration uh, for me. And he started out uh, and uh, he had three kids by the time he was 21 years old, wow. which blows my mind yeah. because uh, at 21 years old, I, I could barely, you know, uh, take care, care of for myself. <laughs> right. And, uh, but he had to figure out a way to make it work. So he walked on to uh, a car lot and he said, you know, can, can I get a job here? And kind of started in service and ended up getting a job selling cars. Um, fast forward decades later, um, he was one of the most successful auto dealers in the South. Awesome. He had a board seat at GM. Wow. And um, I always asked him, you know, what's what's the key to your success? He said, tenacity, you know, wow. that, that stick-to-itiveness, you know, not giving up. So hopefully a little, I have a little of that that, that rubbed off on 100%, 100%. me. 100%. And so you studied English at Colgate University. Um, can you walk us through how that kind of helped you in your career today? How did you use the tool of language to propel your career forward? Wow, you, you did your homework. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, it, it, it is so amazing how much we use the the spoken language and the, and the written language every day and so much of what we do. And I think the way we communicate, um, certainly with the thousands and thousands of emails that, that you compose. Right. But I, I think... It's been very helpful throughout my career, just being able to communicate, hopefully a, a direct style right. and being able to um, articulate, your, articulate points. your points clearly. And it's uh, it stayed with me. Awesome. So, and I, I think also the liberal arts education, just to get an experience in, in Colgate, I, I wasn't, again, I, they didn't even have a business major, but right. to be able to spend time on the, on the swim team, be in a fraternity, take a bunch of great uh, classes and uh, it was it was 
had a really great, well-rounded experience doing that. Awesome. Perfect. And uh, you worked at Massey Knackle from 1998 to 2014. How did the company change from when you started to when it was acquired by Cushman and Wakefield? And how did this experience prepare you to be a principal and a leader in your business today? Right. So when I started, and which was in 1998, 10 years after Bob and Paul had founded right. the, the company. I know you've already had Bob here. Yeah. I think, have you had Paul on yet? yet you got to no. have Paul on. So. Yeah, you get them both. You'll get the, the full story. But uh, when I came and they, and they were already, they had established a niche and they, they, brilliant. The right. fact they said, we're going to focus on small to mid-sized buildings. We're going to do in a territory system. Uh, we're going to do exclusive seller wrap. So they already had a lot of momentum. And that being said, when I joined, there was probably only about 20 people at the company. We were only handling South of 96th Street. Mm. If someone wanted to buy uptown or in the boroughs, we said, good luck. We mm. don't even know, you know how, to, how to tell you. Uh, you know, where to go or who to work with. And so uh, very early on after I joined, we opened up an office in Queens that Tom Donovan opened mm. up shortly thereafter Brooklyn. And I think a lot of the early growth with Massey Knackle was in the boroughs because you had all these global brokerage firms who were all focused on Manhattan, Manhattan yeah. all focused on the trophy assets. And we saw this huge Potential. part of the market the majority of the market, you know, 95% of the properties which sell here are under $50 million. And it was the wild, wild west back then. Right. So, I mean, it was really brilliant to come up with the territory system and how to go after it. But I mean, the boroughs, it was just the, the amount of business that we did out there was just exceptional. We, we'd sell 400 properties a year and 300 of those would be in the boroughs. Wow. So uh, that really allowed us to grow. So by the time uh, we sold the company, which is now, you know, call it about seven uh, excuse me, eight years ago, you know, we had four offices, 250 people. Right. Uh, so it was, it was, it was so much fun being a part of the, you know, that business and being able to help it grow. That's so awesome. That's mm -hmm. great. And what have you learned about yourself since you've closed your first deal at Massey Knuckle? Well, I, I've certainly learned that I love this business. I have a, a passion for it. Uh, I know Bob spoke about that when he came on here. I mean, this is this is a business where you spend a, a lot of time. Lots so of if, if this is work for you, then, then you're you're in the wrong yeah. <laughs> career. But uh, no, we. I just every day it's something new. I'm I'm meeting someone interesting. I'm learning something new about the city or a certain kind of business. And there's also, I, I, I think, um, you know, the first five years in the business trying to figure out sales and brokerage. Uh, and, and I had very early on had an associate or two. Uh, in fact, some very successful brokers today, Brock Emmitsberger, Clint Olson. Mm. Uh, but, you know, from there, I, I ended up building out a team. And if you really want to be successful and do this business and do volume, you have to have a great team. So mm. I, I love every single day thinking about, you know, how do we optimize? How can I be a better leader? Uh, I'm very lucky to have Erica Dean who right. heads up the operations of our group. You got to hear from him. Yeah. I mean, he, he's great. incredibly inspiring. And so I, I love that every single day you can try to do something to just become that much better. Awesome. And, you know, the market's also constantly changing. So, I mean, sure, I've been doing this now for 25 years. So I've seen a couple of these markets where, uh, you know, thinking back to 2009, 2010, that was rough, right. right? So hopefully we're not going into that territory again, but it's, you know, it's it's challenging and you figure things out. And that's, awesome. that's part of the fun to it. Perfect. And um, how soon after you started seeing success in your brokerage business, did you decide to go out and actually start buying your own properties? Very early on uh, in, in my career, 
and I wouldn't say buying properties on my own, that being said, uh, I found, you know, watching my clients who as, as the broker, you know, you're kind of getting a bird's eye view right. of, of all the transactions out there. And I saw a lot of clients who were just doing tremendously well. And, you know, timing has a lot to do with it. Right. Uh, so, but, you know, you see all these opportunities and you say, look, how can I not I get in the this. game, yeah. right? And so I remember very early on in my career, um, uh, a developer sponsor friend of mine, Matt Blesso, who I'd met through NYU, he, uh, he called me up. He said, James, I've got this great mixed use property down in the village, um, tied it up off market. I think I got a really good buy on it. W what do you say? Can you flip the contract for mm. me? So I said, sure, let me give it a run. So. I start calling on this property and within a couple of days, I had uh, over a half a million dollars on the table just for him to sell the contract. Awesome. So I knew he got a great deal. Yeah. And he said, you know, James, I appreciate, I know you did a lot of work on this, but I love this project. I'm gonna do it myself. And I said, well, you know, Matt, are you are you taking on investors for this? And I never invested in anything and, or, you know, knew what to ask. He says, well, it turns out I am. And so I, I ended up being his first investor ever. Wow. Uh, went on to invest in over a dozen different properties with him. That deal still stands as the best investment of all time. Awesome. Not, not in total gross dollars, but if you look at multiples of return, it was the gift that kept giving. I think we bought the property when all shook out at a million eight, a million nine. He ended up selling off the condos upstairs for five, six million dollars. Obviously there was cost to convert it, but we kept the retail. So now we're into the retail for nothing. We sell the retail as wow. a separate condo five, 10 years later for over $4 million, wow. okay? So double what we paid <laughs> yeah. for the whole building originally. But then the gift just kept giving. Then we 1031 exchanged that into a building in Brooklyn. We sold the air rights off of that building. We still have the building. I mean, it just- That's awesome. Yeah, so uh, it, it's uh, definitely, it, I think when you're a broker, you see a lot of great opportunities. I think the important thing is to do it in the right way. So I'm very careful when I invest, I don't invest in properties that I'm selling. Mm. It's a clear conflict. Even if I came in as a minority partner afterwards, if a client said, hey, James, you told me you just sold the property for the highest price and right. now I found out you bought it on the back end, that doesn't make me feel too great. So when I buy or I, and I invest now, I wanna make sure that another broker's handling the property. That mm. way it's, it's clean. Okay, got it. And um, how has your investing strategy changed from the beginning to this point today? You know, what I've realized is that as much as it is about the deal itself, it's more about the sponsor. Mm. And it's, I, I don't talk a lot about it. I, I didn't even talk about it in, in the, the book that I, uh, that I know we're gonna get to, right. but I, I do some venture capital investing as, as, as well. And for me, it's all about the sponsor. And, and you know, I wanna see, um, do they have a track record? Right. Do they have the right team? And so I'm very focused on that. And that's why, you know, once I, I saw what Matt Blesso could do, it was easy to invest a dozen more times with him, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you've got that track record. And that's not to say that we didn't, uh, that, that they were all home runs. I mean, if you do this long enough, you're gonna get, course, um, yeah. you, you're gonna have a couple that don't work out. But yeah, it, it's it's really important to, to work with, with great sponsors. Got it. So would you say that starting out, you kind of looked at the asset more, but now you kind of look at who's actually investing and operating into the asset? That's the first thing I look at, yeah. Awesome, great. And um, what property types of submarkets did you see the most success in and which ones did you struggle with the most? You're talking about now as a broker or as an investor? Uh, or both? As, as both, yeah. Okay, so 
as a broker, it really, uh, back in my Massey and Ackle days, it was really where my focus was, which was Chelsea, then the village downtown, and a lot of focus on kind of multifamily right. mixed use. That's always been the bread and butter and there's a ton of it here. So even, you know, our, our team now will sell 50 properties a year and half of that's gonna be multifamily mixed use. But we do a fair amount of straight retail as mm. well. I actually am very uh, bullish about retail. I, I love the rebound that we've seen on it since COVID. Uh, land assemblage development fascinates me. Office, obviously a lot going on there. So we'll, we'll uh, try to figure out how to convert those to residential now in many cases. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I like the fact that we do all asset classes. The way we have our team set up today is not just by territory, it's, it's by asset class. So mm. I've got multifamily, specialist, retail, land, and, and office. Um, as an investor, this might seem strange, but I also, I, I almost find myself investing because I don't want any conflicts in my market. Right. I end up doing a lot more investing outside of New York City. Okay. So right now, um, the last couple of deals I've looked at, uh, I went in on an industrial portfolio up in Connecticut. Uh, I'm looking at a um, an RV park right now, which uh, sounds pretty interesting. interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm opportunistic for sure. Great, awesome. And can you walk us through your experience as a professor of almost 10 years at NYU Shack? What are the main takeaways and how did this experience kind of shape your career from this point on? You know, I, I love getting in the classroom and it's, I, I think when you find, when you're out there speaking to, to a classroom, uh, sure, on one hand, hopefully I can help students, give right. them some good advice, help, you know, help them think about their, their future trajectory. I also get a ton of information of and I think you find out what other people are up to. A lot of those connections that I made early uh, on in the classroom have become clients, friends today. So it's an incredible network. And it's um, in addition to guest lecturing at NYU, uh, I've now, I've spoken at Columbia, Fordham. I do a lot of work with uh, Wharton. I'm actually going up to Cornell later this week. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Great, yeah. awesome. And so James, you're clearly a veteran in the space and certainly someone that people should listen to. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Um, what is it about and why did you decide to write it? Yes, so the name of the book is The Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing and thrilled that it just uh, was released last week. So this is a, a long time 100%. in the making. And you know, right in the very kind of dark days of COVID. So sitting at home, you know, late March, April, had no idea, you know, are we gonna be in this for weeks, months, years, who knows? And I'm a big fan of coaching. And my, my coach, Blaine Strickland at the time said, James, do you wanna look back at this time and just say, hey, you were able to hang in there and wait it out? Or do you wanna actually Prosper. take advantage and do something where you might never have time like this again? And so I didn't start writing the book, but I did start a podcast. And mm. at the time I didn't even know what a podcast was. Right. I didn't hadn't listened to any, but I said, okay, wait, I can actually interview somebody. No one knows what's going on out there, but let's, let's talk about uh, your story, right? And so when I interview, I'm really interested in, you know, tell, tell me about how you built your business. Right. Tell me, you know, th these timeless principles that are evergreen. So I'm about, I don't know, 50 or so podcast episodes in, I can't even remember who gave me the idea in the, the book, but I said, all right, I got a, I've got some really great episodes here. I, I wanna write a book on mm. this. So I, I, I start working with a writing partner, talking about some, some of these uh, legendary investors stories. And, and I'm, I'm about halfway, three quarters done. And I'm thinking, all right, th this is 
I hope that this is really good stuff. This is very inspirational, but it doesn't actually tell you how to do it, right? right? So I said, I got to write the how-to book. And what's interesting is that there's a lot of books out there, whether it's how to, you know, flip homes, how, you know, rich dad, poor dad, there's a lot of that stuff out there. There's also a lot of textbooks, mm. but it's interesting. Whenever I ask people, what is the book that taught you how to invest in real estate? Or if I go into the classroom and I say, what's the book that you give your students? Right. And they say, oh, well, you know, I, I've got some articles. I pull out, you know, a couple chapters here and there, but there's no book Nothing that concrete. really tells you from start to finish, how do you, first of all, what type of asset do you want to invest in? What type of team do you put together? How do you go find that? How do you work with brokers? How do you raise capital? How do you close the deal? How do you reposition right. it, right? And so that was the impetus for the insider's edge to real estate investing. And the, the whole premise and why I love real estate investing is that it's an insider's game, right? So we can go buy stocks right now and you can find out exactly where something's trading at any minute of the day. And, and everybody has the same information. Right. If not, you know, as the retail customer, I probably have the worst information right. out there, right? So I might as well just be throwing darts, right? Um, and even when I try to make a, you know, I, I, I thought uh, after COVID that I'd make a great bet on Carvana mm. because, um, you know, I, I, I bought a car for, for my, my son or we, we bought the car. I had such a great experience. I said, this is the future of <laughs> right. the car business. I'm going in on Carvana. And if, I don't know if you've been following that stock, but it's just dropped Thanks. like a rock. So anytime <laughs> I give stock advice, just do the exact opposite of what I said. But the point being is if there's all that information out there for stocks, real estate is a very inefficient marketplace, right? right? You can see two buildings that sold on the same block and one sold for double the other. And you say, well, how can that be, right? right. Well, okay, well, maybe one building's renovated, maybe one has more rents, but it could also be that the building that sold for more money worked with a professional broker who actually exposed it to the marketplace got the right buyers. and got the highest price, whereas the other was a distressed sale and they sold it at auction, right? right? So. That's really interesting to me that you can find these great opportunities if you know what to look for right. and the right questions to ask, right? And then you also have, you're the master of your own destiny and that you can take that asset and you can add value as mm. opposed to just sitting there and waiting and hoping that someone else does you know, right by the yeah. company, for example. 100%. So you kind of boil down all these inefficiencies and you kind of um, condense hundreds of years of wisdom in the commercial real estate industry all into one book. I hope so. I, I, I don't know if I've got hundreds of years in there, but but definitely my my last twenty five years. But if awesome. yes, if you add up all my clients and all that knowledge, all the yes, there, there's a lot that went into that for sure. Perfect, awesome. And um, as far as your podcast, uh, what have you learned about people, and what have you learned about yourself from doing fifty uh, to hundred interviews um, on your podcast, The Insiders Edge to Real Estate Investing? So, what what I found, and this really is. is uh, part of the foundation of, of this book is this is a business about the people, right? right? And yes, there's physical assets and there, there's real estate, but success in this business is having the right team and knowing the right people. The first interview that I ever gave for my podcast was with Bruce Ratner, mm. prolific developer. I mean, yeah. he's built over 50 projects here in, in, in New York. He's a part owner of uh, the Nets and I kept asking Bruce, what's the key to success? Oh, I had this great team, all the people, I'd always get the right person for the job and this is how I'd hire these people. Interestingly, 
In the same way, I asked Rick Clark the same questions, you know, former CEO of Brookfield, right. the largest property owner in the world. Yeah. Rick, when you started with Brookfield, you were the, they were a Canadian company. You started the New York office with like three people. Now you were the largest property zone in the world. You know, how'd you do it? Yeah. You know, and, and this was, I was thinking Rick's moment to say, well, you know, hey, I, I really took charge and I took the lead. No, he said, we had great people. Mm. And when I went back and I counted, I listened to that episode. I had it transcribed with Bruce Ratner and counted the number of times that he said people are team in a one hour interview over 50 times, Wow! right? I don't even think he realized he was doing it at the time, but it just shows you it's about the people. people yeah. yeah, 100%. And who was your most exciting guest on your podcast? That's, uh, yeah, that's like picking a favorite child. Yeah. I, I don't know, you know, they're all so interesting to me because now, and, and you know, you've been doing this a, a while now that you just start going down these rabbit holes and you know, you, you never know what you're yeah, gonna exactly. find out. So, I mean, th there's a lot of favorites out there. You know, it's interesting though. The one thing I will say is sometimes when I have a newer emerging sponsor and they come on, they say, oh, James, you know, you, you, you've had uh, Scott Reckler on, you've had Francis Greenberger, Don Peebles, like how, what am I gonna teach everybody, right. anybody? And I said, well, you know, look, you've done this all your, you know, you started this company five years ago, yeah. okay? And now you've got, you know, whatever, 800, 1,000 units. I think listeners are gonna be really interested to hear how did you do it, right? And they might actually identify with you more. Yeah. So I love it also, I'm sure you learn a ton yeah, by doing these that, you know, you, you find out the, these great tips as well. So it's it's a lot of fun. 100%. And what do you think makes a good podcast host? Well, I think preparation and clearly, I mean, you've <laughs> done your research. I, I wish I, I, you know, do a lot more research for my um, for my podcast. A lot of the times I know my guests before, so I can right. kind of rely on that. But I think it is, you want it to be conversational mm. and you wanna, I think it's okay to go a little off tangent. Right. And, you know, for, for example, last week I interviewed a merchant developer who goes and builds properties for CVS and triple net properties. And it's not a business that I'm even in. Right. And I, I hope the audience doesn't mind, but we got into like a 20, 30 minute conversation on environmental issues. And I, you know, in New York, you know, sure we've got, you do your phase one, you do this, yeah. you do that. But when you're developing, certainly in some areas outside of New York, I mean, it's, it's a whole separate business and all the liabilities and consideration. And so I just, you know, it was really interesting for me to, to go into the, the weeds and right. figure that out. So you kind of let curiosity take the reins. That's right. And guide yeah. you into a certain mm -hmm. direction. And how do you come up with the questions for your show? Is there a process that you go through before every episode? Embarrassingly, no. I, I just, I really just kind of let it fly. Awesome. I mean, I, I kind of know where I want to start. And, and now that I've done enough of these, I want to hear the guest's story because I really think those early years are very telling. Right. When you kind of say, hey, what was your first job? Tell me about your first deal. Right. I always want to know about the first deal. Mm -hmm. How did you raise the money? You know, to hear even, again, I keep talking about that episode with Bruce Ratner, to, to hear him talk about scrambling to raise his first $25,000, I, I said, you know, that, that's, that's pretty inspiring. interesting. People yeah. can, can relate to that. So, and then after that, I, I wanna know, um, you know, 
certainly what advice would they give to the aspiring investor? Mm. How, how do you start out? I think that's always interesting. And then now that I've got the, you know, this book and really uh, the, the, um, the message, you know, having this inside edge to real estate investing, right. I always want to know what is your edge? What is your advantage? And it's also interesting to hear how people answer that. hundred percent. And how did developing your personal brand um, help you in your business of brokerage and your business of investment? That's a great question. And I would give a lot of credit to my friend, Ryan Surhan. And by the way, if you haven't had him on your show, you should Definitely absolutely will. have him. You know, I was always fascinated in what residential uh, residential brokers have done, because they, they figured this out way much yeah. <laughs> you know, longer ago than, than commercial brokers. And a lot of commercial brokers, they like to keep things closer to the vest, right? They, they almost, and Bob and Paul even talk about when they started in the business and they put a for sale sign and they sent it out there and the owner said, hey, why are you doing that? You don't need to tell everybody, right, right. just bring it to me, I'll buy it for you, you know? And so, and it's amazing that a lot of the stuff, a lot of the, the properties uh, in commercial, they still sell off market, they mm. sell quietly. You never even know about it, right? Whereas residential, sure, everybody there, puts yeah. it on the, the multiple listing service. So I was very interested to hear how did Ryan do it, right? Because he is the master of building that brand. And so when he came out with that course, Sell It Like Sirhan, I think I was one of the first people to show up for, for the pro membership. And he said, he called me, he said, James, you know that, you know, we've got a residential business here. And, you know, I said, I said, exactly. I, I understand. I, I want to learn how you do mm, this. Yeah. And it's been a great collaboration. Ryan actually wrote the forward to my book. Awesome. Uh, and he, he gave me a lot of great advice. So jamesnelson.com, right? Perfect. He, you know, I've got the, the site there and there's a lot of content. So I think the important thing though, when you're building your personal brand, it's not about, hey, I'm number one and I'm the best, right? Mm. No one, you know, that's yeah, not yeah. what people want to hear. It's, do you have valuable content to share? You know, how can, and, and that's why when you look at the white papers that I, I write every month, I put myself in my client's shoes and I say, what, what's keeping them up at night? Mm. What, what do they want to know about? And I write that article for them. We, right. we are in the problem solving business. So- that's that's what's really important. I mean, sure, it's it's under your name, right. so people know where to find you. But you're there to provide help value. Them. So you think you should build your brand around providing value to people instead of extracting value. That's really For the focus. Sure. Yeah, and and I think it it starts with being an expert, right? Right. So you need to whatever your space is, whatever your specialty is, you need to know that market so you can speak it. intelligently about yeah. it, and you have something valuable to say. Hundred percent. And um, what do you think is an underutilized tool that most brokers and investors aren't using that may be holding them back in their career? Well, I think the whole podcast medium is now out yeah. of the uh, <laughs> out of the bag. But no, I mean, for a while it was interesting that I was doing this, and it didn't seem like anybody else was. was. So, yeah, exactly. you know, it's uh, it's it's a great format. I'm now, uh, and I know Clubhouse kind of came and went. I don't know if people are still doing that, but I, I am watching now to see what's happening on Twitter with right. Twitter spaces. I haven't, I, I think I get much better traction on, well, LinkedIn by far and 100%. beyond uh, is the most powerful um, social media tool for us and getting the, the word out there, Instagram and, and second. But I mean, Twitter, I, I know investors are out there. Right. I, I think it's just, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and I, I really feel like it's a platform that you have to work, right? Yeah. You really have to engage. And I just, I, I can barely keep up with my emails during the day. Yeah, 100%. But that's, that's something interesting to watch. Definitely. 
And um, I want to discuss uh, some concepts in your book to kind of give the audience a little preview of what they can expect. Um, you mentioned this concept that finding your niche in the real estate investing begins with understanding what property type best suits you along with the right management intensity and risk levels. Um, can you walk us through how having the right information can kind of give you the advantage? Right. So the, the first piece is, yes, to really understand, you know, where is your expertise and where do you have the time uh, to devote to it? Because sure, it sounds like everybody wants to be a developer. I know Ed, uh, I teach a class with Jeff Ravitz, who's a friend of mine at NYU. And he starts out the class, you know, saying, who wants to be a developer? And everybody raises <laughs> yeah. their hand. Everybody wants to be a developer. Everyone wants to make tons of money. He says, all right, well, let's let's talk about what happens at a closing? Okay, mm. hey, who, who's a broker here? Oh, all those brokers. Do you get a check at closing? Oh yeah, you get a check, you get paid, don't you? Okay, what about attorneys? Oh yeah, you, you get, when do you get paid? Right. Oh, at closing, yeah. Developer, what are you doing? Okay, you're signing checks, you're signing personal guarantees, you're, you know, taking on all this liability. Right. You know, everybody says, all right, how many of you still wanna, you know, be a developer? Yeah. Maybe <laughs> half of them still raise their hand. But, you know, the point is you need to understand how much time that you have to devote to this, right? Mm. And there's nothing wrong. I do the majority of my investing as a limited partner, right? Mm. I don't have time to be out there actively managing every single day. Yeah. I just don't, right? And I think I can do a better job investing by being a limited partner or a co-GP where I can bring on a great partner to invest with. So I think it's really important for, for you to understand and embrace, you know, where is the best role for you to, to play when, when investing? Definitely, 100%. And I want to ask some questions about specific um, asset classes and property types. So for retail owners and investors, uh, you also mentioned this in your book, how important is it to have a few retail tenants that at hand that readily want to expand? Yeah, I love this business plan. Uh, Jeff Sutton, and uh, I don't know if I could ever get him on my podcast. Maybe you'll have more <laughs> luck getting him on yours, but uh, brilliant. I mean, one of the absolute you know retail uh, gurus and he made his fortune early on in the days he... I think he opened up a hundred Payless stores. You know, maybe it wasn't the sexiest thing of the time, and right. then he moved on to Walgreens. But he would go and create situations. He would have Payless. I remember hearing him speak, and they'd point out that store. I want that property, and he'd go and he'd buy out the tenant, buy the building. He'd have the Payless lease in hand, in hand yeah. close on the deal, and the day he closed on it was worth double what he paid for awesome. it. So, I think today. Clearly, uh, vacant retail and in some areas, distress, buy at a discount, very challenging to finance mm -hmm. vacant retail. You have that tenant in hand, it'll make Much a easier. big difference for sure. And um, as far as office, what should people investing in office in this day and age consider before going into contract and acquiring an office asset? Yeah, office, uh, besides the obvious with all the you know, questions as far as return to office, hybrid. Class B, yeah. You know, the, the one thing to know about office, it is very capital intensive, right? So for someone starting off in the business, I do not recommend office because first of all, the scale of it and the amount of money that you need to bring to the table, it's not, as you know, just buying the building. Mm -hmm. It's actually then trying to tenant the building, which is incredibly Difficult. expensive. Yeah. You know, you might think, oh, I got a great deal. I bought this office building for three, $400 a foot. You might be in for double that just to improve it, TI, mm. brokerage commissions, downtime. So you really need to make sure that if you're doing something like that, you've got deep pockets and, and, and you're able to um, take 100%. the long view on that. Yep, 100%. 
And can you walk us through a deal that you were very confident in going in that didn't go as planned? What would you have done differently? So uh, on the investment side, I, I will tell you uh, one of the um, one of the investments where we were completely wiped out was uh, a property in Fire Island. This was a retail uh, hospitality, mm. hot, you know, F and B, and. When, and th this was a, a sponsor who I had invested with multiple times before. So by now I said, look, th this sounds great. And we get the package and on tax returns, it's an eight or 9% return. Mm. And I said to myself, look, this is an eight or 9% return. This is what they're reporting to the IRS. This yeah. is a, a, an F and B business. I mean, who knows how much cash is you know flowing here and, and it hasn't been professionally managed. This thing is gonna be un unbelievable. And it was a complete unmitigated disaster. Oh, wow. Anything that could have gone wrong, went, went wrong. wrong. Starting with Sandy that wiped the whole place out. Then there was a fire. Mm. And yes, we got finally got the insurance and we got something else built there. But it was a seasonal business and it was a business. It wasn't a real estate deal. Mm -hmm. um, I went in on another bar afterwards. I lost all my money on that too. So I don't do, I'll, I'll invest in real estate. I'm not investing in, in F&B and I'm sure there's plenty of people make tons of money. It's right. cool to walk into the club and say, hey, I'm a part owner, but no thank you. Right, so this business <laughs> is more complicated than it looks like from the outside. Very complicated, <laughs> especially a seasonal business yeah. because at least if it's a year-round business, you can employ year-round staff and you can you know, make adjustments on the off-season. Here, you've got four months to make all your money for yeah. the entire year. And if you get you know, some of these, obviously Sandy, that went, you know, wiped out the entire season and the next year, right. it, it's uh, Difficult to very predict. risky. Yeah. And what value-add strategies um, have you seen that are kind of unconventional and out of the box that have worked? Unconventional value add strategies. Um, well, I don't know if it's it's entirely unconventional, but I love uh, when there's an ability to add air rights mm. and, and maybe there's some development potential that uh, might not be um, initially visible. Uh, visible. Yeah, and, and the, the famous story is with Michael Stern's purchase of Walker Tower. Yeah. He figured out some kind of mechanical deductions where he bought the, this old uh, Con Ed station for $25 million. Yeah. The whole sellout was rumored to be a half a billion dollars. And yes, he had to build, build the building, but he clearly was able to figure out what to do with that property that no one else could. I also remember uh, Margaret Stryker. She's great too. You should have, have her on the show. Uh, she's probably bought, I don't know, over a dozen or so properties for me over the years. And I remember, and it, she always is a little close to the vest. I, I never know, you know, Margaret, <laughs> she knows that if she doesn't want to let on too much right. because she knows if, if I tell the broker, then the broker's going to tell everybody else what to do. So she, she buys this, uh, this mixed use property down in, in the West village. And it was kind of a, a market price for what it was. And I was thinking, you know, Margaret, why, why are you buying this? She said, just wait, you'll see. So she closes on this and she said, look, you, you, you just sold me, I, I just have the rights to build this carriage house in the back. She found some archaic zoning rule where she had the ability to replicate a carriage house that didn't even exist in the back of the wow. property. So I think that's really fun when you can figure out something to do on a property that no one else knows about. 100%. So having so your value as an investor and as a as a operator is kind of just to find the information that nobody else can find. Yes. And capitalize that information. Yes. And how do you make money in a down market? 
Well, you always want to buy right. Uh, so you don't want to lever, uh, over lever yourself. And, and it's interesting, having done this 25 years, I look at the deals that I sold in 06, 07, peak of the market. Mm. And those who over levered, and it was easy back then because the banks were just throwing money at people. Right. Most of them lost their properties, right? But those who were very you know, conservatively leveraged, they were able to hold out and over time rents went up. So, mm-hmm. you know, look, I, I think in down markets, and, and this is, um, you know, I'm not sure what, when you're gonna be airing this, but I mean, we've just had this run up in, in interest rates, right? And so as a result, a lot of the, the buyers are on the sidelines. I think Lev talked yeah. about this too yeah. when he was on your show. And as a result, there's less competition yeah. in the market, right? So I think this is a great opportunity because there's still owners. And one of the things I talk about in my book, which is the most important thing to look when you are buying a property is seller's motivation, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it's an estate sale, whether it's a partnership dispute, whether it's... Um, uh, distress, you have an owner who has to sell right. and there's not a lot of competition. Yes, there are there are great opportunities out there. 100%. And how important are politics in the real estate game? Incredibly mm. uh, important. And so, yes, a, a lot of what we do here is dependent on whether it's zoning, whether it's tax abatements. Mm. And right now you don't see any rental development because the 421A program yeah, expired, expiration. right? So I think there is a lot of talk though about, and, and look, not, not, not we could have a whole nother hour discussing the pros and cons of rent regulation and how yeah. I believe that it actually doesn't make housing more affordable. In fact, I, I wrote a white paper on it, but I think the the more important part is there were so many investors who just heard mentality as soon as HSTPA happened in 2019, they all said, you know what, forget New York. I'm gonna go buy in the Southeast, right? right away. And I get it. You can go and do anything you want. Like in, in I, I think it's Houston um, that has no zoning, right? You could just build whatever you want. Okay, well, that's great when you're a developer, Then, but then so can everybody else, yeah. right? So in a strange way, the barriers of entry with how difficult it is to get things done in New York makes properties more valuable. And the fact that no one can build new product right now, mm-hmm. again, makes housing that much more valuable. However, you know, with, with rent regulation, sure. If you can't raise the rents, then the return has to justify that. And that's why if we're selling a fully, we have a, a building in Queens right now that's mm. fully rent regulated, we're selling it at over a 6% return, right? So you can still borrow money and, and have positive leverage. You know, a lot of those investors who are buying down in the Southeast and, mm. you know, three, three and a half caps, they might be having some challenges yeah, now definitely. that it's time to refinance. And how do you navigate this world if things like this are out of your control completely? How do you navigate the politics? Yeah, I mean, look, I try to do the best I can to um, stay on, on the, the inside and to try to find out what's going on. Uh, the Real Estate Board in New York does an incredible job. Yeah. If it's rent regulation, it's it's CHIP, but really hearing everything that's going on. And I, I think also engaging with politicians. So I was in an event last week with... Um, the, the speaker of the city council. And, you know, look, you want to hear what they have to say. You want to hear what their priorities 100%. are. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of commentary out there of, you know, it's the, the pro-business versus the politicians. Everybody wants the same thing, right? Yeah. We all want housing, right? It's just a question of how do we go about doing this? And so if we can kind of really try to um, cooperate, partner, right? I think there, there's a lot more that definitely can be done. Yeah, definitely. And what has been the most difficult point in your career? And how did that kind of shape you as an individual from that point on? 
Well, the most difficult was certainly, if you think about 2009, where sales volume dropped 90%, 9-0 from 2007, as did my income. Yeah. That was a pretty scary time because we had no idea what was gonna happen. How long were we gonna be in this? And I think, uh, you know, what, what we did and, and Bob and Paul were certainly all a part of it. We, we just kept showing up to the office. Maybe we didn't have mm. anything better to do, mm. but we said, look, we're gonna keep just showing up. We wanna be uh, that, that true advisor. We wanna be reaching out to our clients, telling them what was going on. You never know when things are gonna turn. And then next thing you know it, the bank starts selling loans. I'd never even sold a loan before. And next thing you know it, by 2010, we're representing every single major bank yeah. selling all these loans because we were putting in the work. So I think that's really the key. When things get challenging, sometimes the immediate gut reaction is, look, I'm gonna just run in the different direction or right. I'm gonna go do something else or I'm gonna just take a break. And I, I think it's really tough to jump out. Think objectively. When you stay in it and almost double down, once things turn and they always do, you find out that you're, you're much better positioned Definitely. for the rebound. So in times of, in tough times, it's important to think objectively and take your emotions out of the equation completely and think about what everyone else is doing to make your decision. That's a great way to put it, yes. Okay. And uh, if, you if you had to go back and do it all over again, start your career again from scratch, how would you go about becoming a legend in the space? Well, I, don't, I don't know if I've, I've uh, reached legendary status I yet, but uh, <laughs> well, I think that early on, and, and yes, I did do some investing, but I think I would have done a lot more. Mm. And, and it, it, knowing that it's tough to do both. I mean, the, the brokerage is a full-time job, yeah. right? And we did, uh, the, the big opportunity for us to invest was to do, uh, we raised two funds, River Oak, New York City, one and two. Mm. So we said, this is the best way we can invest. We can put out JV equity for value add deals in New York. We can invest alongside our clients. And we did two of those funds. You know, timing is always you know, a big part of whether of or not you have success for those. Uh, so uh, some of those funds are still playing out, but you know, I, I, I wish um, we, we had started in that, that arena earlier. Understood. And what do you look for in a new hire? So I, I think it's really, and I'll, I'll take this from Paul's playbook. And I, I think it's probably the reason why at least I got a, a call in for an interview. Although I like to remind them there was only two people who applied <laughs> for the, the job, right? But I was a, a swimmer. I was the captain of the swim team at Colgate and athletes, you know, whether you're an athlete or whether it's, um, know, debate team or you know, whatever it is, if you can show leadership skills and you can show that, um, you know, that you're willing to overcome, it's not just hard work, but right. overcome challenges. And I, I especially remember Barbara Corcoran spoke to our, uh, our company very early on in the career. We asked, you know, Barbara, you, you meet with, you know, hundreds, thousands of brokers. What, how do you know, what, what are the attributes that make someone successful? She said, it's how you f handle failure. Mm. So, you know, that, that knowing that if you fall upon hard times, mm. then you're gonna have uh, an, a chance to overcome that and grow from it. Right. So that's why, uh, and I gotta know it, I did take a look at your, um, your bio on LinkedIn and, and before your, your very yeah. impressive uh, career and, and- I said most uh, of my businesses have failed. You said most of your businesses have failed. Right. I didn't look at that as a negative, yeah. right? Because if you're not out there doing it, and I would imagine even if those businesses aren't there today, yeah. I'm sure you learned a tremendous amount exactly. from them. Yeah, 
And how, how, what's your mindset when you, when you do, when something happens to you that you didn't expect, how do you approach the situation? Uh, I, <laughs> I, I guess if, if I could improve like in the arena, yeah, no, I, I, I have a tendency to make very quick decisions mm. and there's pros and cons to that, right? On one hand, I think that I can, I can move very quickly. Right. I can get a lot of things accomplished. I'm a big believer in progress over perfection, right? right? If I sat around and thought about all the ways that I could make this book as successful as possible, it would have never gotten done. Yeah. I just said, I'm doing it, let's figure it out, right? And yeah. that's, so when there's a problem or something that pops up, I'm usually the first one to say, I've got it, I've got the solution, right? And right or wrong, you know, so, I think we can all continue to grow. I, and luckily I've got great partners and you got a chance to, to speak to Erica right. Dean. And for those of you listening, you should go back and listen to that 100%. episode because he's, he's such a in, critical thinker and he really balances me out because when we first started partnering together five years ago, cause I just come up with all these ideas, right. Eric, let's do this, let's do that. And he was writing them all down and trying to, you know, and, and it's impossible, you right. can't do it all. And so luckily, you know, he really helps kind of streamline and figure out where we should focus our attention and be successful. Definitely. And do you think in a partnership, it's, it's important to have opposites, kind of somebody who's very uh, neurotic, has a lot of ideas and someone who's very level-headed and smart and kind of can, you know, take, think, take a step back? Yeah, I, I think that having a team with different skill sets different personalities. Is, is, is super important. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. And um, how do you go about setting goals for yourself and for your team? So every year we end up going through the, the financial review. We make our perform. We track everything. Right. I mean, we are insane as far as what our uh, KPIs are, right? And so, yes, to the penny, I know where we want to be. That being said, we've made, uh, a, I don't want to say a, a big shift, but the emphasis now is not so much on goals as is opposed habits. And, and maybe we're just jumping on the band, mm. the Atomic Habits bandwagon yeah. right now. But, you know, the thing about goals are you, you can say, okay, I want to make this much money. I want to close this many deals, whatever it is. And you can put that you know, you can put that on a note card, you can put it in your desk, you can look at it, you know, at the end of the year, did you make it or not? But what's more important, of course, are what are the actionable steps that you're gonna put in place every day 100%. to make that happen? Yeah. So very focused now on the habits mm -hmm. of what I wanna be doing on a daily basis to Definitely. achieve the, the long-term goals. 100%. Um, and James, I watched an interview you did recently where you said that if you wanna be the first phone call and really have that reputation as a buyer of being a closer, you have to be ready to close on a deal that you place an offer on. How do you balance keeping your reputation strong as a closer and keeping your investors happy? What if closing on a deal you initially place an offer on doesn't make sense anymore for your investors or for you? Wow, that's a great question. So I think, Yes, if you make an offer, I think it's important to stand by it. I think, and I write about it in my book, reputation is, is everything. everything. Yeah. So look, that's not to say that things don't come up in a deal. If there's new information that happens or you're negotiating a deal, I mean, we, we've seen dozens and I mean, hundreds, thousands of transactions yeah. get renegotiated over the last six months because you start talking about a deal and rates go up and you just can't make the numbers work anymore, mm -hmm. right? But that being said, if you get the reputation where anytime things are gonna change, 
you know, people aren't gonna wanna do business with you. Just like, you know, it can go the other way as well. It can, you know, the market can start to run. Yeah. It's interesting. I saw Jeff Gural the other day uh, and I interviewed him and he talked about the value of a handshake. And she, he said, back in the day, we shook hands and that was it. It didn't matter if yeah. I got a higher offer, I'm sticking Kept with that, that deal. And you don't see that as much today, but I, I think it is important that you wanna stand by your word. Very important. Awesome, 100%. And I watched another interview you did where you said that um, when buying an asset, the key is to build the right team um, of specialists. How do you go about finding and incentivizing these specialists to work with you? Right, crucial to have the right team in place. And I, I talk about that in, in the, the book, book as well. And it's specialist. And you, you, you said you know, that, that term because it's not just an attorney who does your trust and wills. I mean, if you wanna go buy a multifamily in New York, a yeah. rent regulated asset, you better hope that your attorney has closed on multiple rent regulated yeah. apartment buildings before yeah. and they have the L and T and they know what to ask, right? So very important that you have that attorney, obviously the, you know, the broker or brokers who are out there looking out for you, bringing you opportunities, yeah. rental brokers, leasing agents who can tell you the reality, not just what looks good in a pro forma, the managing agent that yeah. can tell you the realities of operating a, a business uh, building. So very essential to have the right people. And as far as uh, incentivizing them, so most of these people, I mean, certainly brokers are commission only. Mm. Uh, attorneys, most of them will give you some some um, uh, preliminary hours yeah. uh, as a courtesy, but obviously once there's, whether the deal trades or not, there's gonna be legal fees. So, but I, I think as far as incentivizing, I think that most specialists, people wanna work with people they like, mm -hmm. right? So if you're fun to do business with and you're helpful and you're always thinking of ideas and it's mutual, it's not just, hey, what can I take from you? I, I even talk in my book about building stronger relationships with brokers. And it's it's a two-way street. Right. I mean, so many investors out there are just, hey, what can I get? You know, hey, what do you, what do you got for me? Yeah. You know, whereas if you kind of take that time to say, you know, look, I saw this deal off market. It's not for me, but maybe you want to follow up on it and go list it. Like the broker's going to say, thank you. Yeah. You know, that's great. And they're going to remember you, right? And taking that that extra step. Definitely. So being honest upfront it's, and taking kind of the long-term vision of building a relationship instead of, closing a deal is the way to go about That's it. That's right. It's not just a, you don't want to just have a transactional yeah. relationship with someone. hundred percent. And in another interview you did, you mentioned that uh, for someone starting out as a blank slate in the business, what you can bring to the table to a trusted partner is a great opportunity. How can someone young in this industry with no money give themselves an edge by doing extensive research and due diligence? So that's, uh, you really did your homework. <laughs> yes. So it all starts with the deal, right? And so someone who's looking to get into the business who doesn't have the money, yeah. what do you bring to the table? You bring the opportunity, yeah. right? And so, yes, it is research, right? But it's also, you have to be able to find something that no one else knows yeah. about. So uh, I'll, I'll tell you a very quick story. I don't know how we're doing on time, but um, I went to ICSC and uh, one of the, uh, uh, the big retail buyers out there, they're having a promotion where if you sell them a deal, right they'll buy you a Corvette, right? As a, as a commission. My 18 year old son, all he talks about is cars. Uh -huh. So, and he's, I want this, I want that. I said, hey, Luke, great news. All you have to do is find a property yeah. over $20 million. This is the criteria. It's gotta be this tenant. It's gotta be this cap rate. And they're gonna buy you a Corvette. <laughs> so of course I said, I'll let you do the research. Right. I'll 
do the brokerage and then I'll let you drive the car. And then he debated, <laughs> no, you know, I want to drive the car. But right. so he starts and he goes and he actually did a really good job researching and he found, you know, a bunch of stuff awesome. and we sent him over and they said, well, thanks, but we already saw it. Mm. And he says, well, how do you know they already saw it? I said, well, first of all, you're going to take that investor's word for it because they want to encourage you to bring more yeah. things. If they just tell you everything you show them, yeah. they've already seen, then you're going to stop. So, but the thing he was doing was he was going online and searching where everybody else can find that. Yeah. So the real valuable opportunities are the ones that no one else knows about. So for example, Think about the building that you live in right now. Mm. Maybe, you know, it's owned by, you know, mom and pop. You you know that the rents are low. You catch wind that they want to sell and you bring this opportunity right. and it's not on the market. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. So finding that information that not a lot of people have access to is really the, the key to setting yourself apart as a young person. Yes. Okay. And uh, what idea do you believe, whether grounded in data or intuition, that many people you respect disagree with you on? What do most people disagree with me on? Uh, well, I don't know if, it, if it's uh, complete disagreement, but mm. I think sometimes it, uh, skeptic, skepticism back, yeah. or, or questioning. I mean, there is what we're doing right now, this, this podcast, and we're, we're putting this information out into the ether, free, yeah. right? So, you know, as far as we're doing this to be helpful, to try to be, you know, put great content information out there. Uh, we're probably not doing this to try to get, you know, if someone listens to this episode and they call me right after and says, James, I have a building for sale, so, yeah. you know, that of course would be phenomenal, but that typically does not happen. So uh, sometimes the question would be, James, have you lost your mind? Why are you doing all this? It's a lot of work, yeah. as you know, to do a podcast. Yeah. There's a lot of time and effort, Full right? Job. You could take this time and you could just be calling up and down the block, trying yeah. to find deals to, you know, finance uh, or, or investments to be made. So, you know, look, it, it's hard to say, right? I, I think you have to do it all, but uh, I, th I think some people are skeptical, skeptical about this new way of doing business yeah. and uh, putting information out there. 100%, and would you say that in, the, in moments like this, you're kind of, your gut prevails, even though your brain is telling you not to do it, your gut kind of tells you I, to do it I anyways. just enjoy it. Yeah. You know, look, I mean, sometimes you can't do everything to say there's going to be a direct return. Return, yeah, exactly. Right? If everything we did was, you know, I, I can tell you, I did not write this book to get rich. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, You know, we'll, we'll see if it sells copies, but if it, <laughs> if it helps a lot of people, 100%. great. Yeah, definitely. And uh, James, you've been a broker, investor, professor, podcast host, mm -hmm. author. What's next for you? What's going to be your focus now? You know, I'm having so much fun doing, doing what I'm doing. I, I think the, the question is always, how, how do you do it all? And I do, the, the, the team is uh, the, the group we have, and we have some superstars uh, on the team. Mm. And look, I, I just love being a part of it. And to what extent that I can keep getting involved, bringing in great opportunities. Great. I'm starting to explore other markets as well, helping out our Miami office on a large awesome. scale waterfront development. Mm -hmm. uh, I was out in LA a couple of weeks ago, looking at an opportunity. I don't wanna take my eye too much off the ball in New York, but there's a lot of you know great real estate out Definitely. there. And again, it's interesting to me to be able to learn other markets. Um, and then investing, you know, I want to really, I, I've got to practice what I preach. So I want to definitely really right. spend a lot more time building out my own personal portfolio. 100%. And what does retirement look like for you? 
Well, it's, it's probably, so my sons right now are 18, 15 and 12. So we've got a little, little more time where everyone's, you know, we at least have the younger two yeah. still at home. But my oldest son's gonna be going out to USC. Uh, he's gonna be playing water polo out there, awesome. which is super exciting. So could definitely see ourselves spending a lot more time on the West Coast. We like going up to the Cape in the summers, love Florida. So I, I like to That's keep awesome. moving around. Great. And uh, what drives you nowadays? Is it money, personal achievement, family, philanthropy? And when would you kind of say you've succeeded and you've made it and you're good to go? Wow. So I, I would I'd first say it's not the money yeah. and not because I'm, not that I don't like the, the success and closing it's about opportunities. Products. But if you ask me, James, what was your 1099 last year? I couldn't even tell you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, now I could tell you what our comp, our team revenue top line was to the penny. I am so focused on what the team is doing because I know if the team does well, then you know James Nelson will do well personally. Right. So it, it's not about the money. I, I think it's it's taking on new things, like doing a podcast, having never you know even listened to one at the time yeah. to produce that. This book, this is a, a whole new foray. It's it's fun. I, I think it's just continuing to challenge myself and do new things. Awesome, great. And I have my final question to wrap it up. What advice would you give your 22-year-old self about life, business, and relationships? You know, the, the advice that I would give myself, which I was very fortunate to just be in the right place at the right time is have incredible mentors. Mm. I mean, how lucky I was to, it's not like I applied to 20 real estate shops, right? right? I mean, I, I was literally senior spring up at the Career Service Center. All my buddies had investment banking jobs yeah. and I had to figure something out. And I saw that application for Massey Knackle. And, you know, if you believe in fate and that things happen for a reason, that was certainly the case because to start my career with Bob and Paul and to go on and be their partners and work alongside them for 20 years yeah. right out of college, that's pretty rare. So yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful 100%. for them. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, James, thank you again for doing this. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. There's so much value. It's a lot of fun. There's so much value to be gained for young professionals and they can apply this to their career moving forward. And to the audience, if you're serious about taking your commercial real estate career to the next level, there's no better place to start than James' newly released book, The Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing, Game-Changing Strategies to Outperform the Market. I'll put all the links to the book in the description below for you guys to check it out. And for those who already have the book, please go ahead and leave a five-star review on Amazon to help spread the word. Whether you're new to the business or a seasoned vet, I promise you this book will give you actionable steps to gain the insider's edge to outperform the market. Thanks again. Wow. Thank you, John. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's great.